0: This is The Full Story. I'm Tom Kuser. Artificial intelligence, or AI, has been all over the news. Stories of songs being generated using the voices of singers who never actually sang them, dead actors narrating audiobooks, and of course students drafting reports or papers they never actually researched or wrote. And there are many more examples. This week, the head of OpenAI, the creator of ChatGPT, testified at a Senate hearing. He called on lawmakers to regulate AI. So what does all this mean for us here in Connecticut and New York? How is this evolving technology impacting our lives and what's being done on a local level to monitor and regulate its progress? First, let's get a a better understanding of what AI actually is, what it does, and what it could do. And for that, we turn to Robert Siemens, He's an associate professor at New York University's Stern School of Business. His research focuses on how companies use technology to interact with each other and the economic consequences of AI, robotics, and other advanced technologies. And Professor Siemens joins us via Zoom. Welcome to the full story.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Certainly. Let's start with the most basic question. What is artificial intelligence?
1: I like to define artificial intelligence as very, very sophisticated software, full stop.
0: What does that actually mean in terms of someone's understanding? Or or is that really just what they need to know, at least to begin a conversation about it?
1: I think it's a great question. I mean, I'm trying to be a little bit provocative, I guess, by saying that AI is just software. I mean, it's true. It is just software. It's just ones Um, and zeros. I'm an economist, so you're getting an answer from an economist who d- doesn't actually build any AI. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do study it. I do use it. If you had a computer scientist on here, they would probably give you a different answer. But I think that for the purposes of, certainly for my own research purposes, for the purposes of my students, I think for the purposes of most of your listeners, just think about it as very, very sophisticated software. At the end of the day, you know that's what it is. It's software.
0: One of the uh, discussions surrounding AI involved, and this goes back to December, I think. It involved Chat GPT. Quite a bit of talk about that. What is Chat GPT, and why is it such an innovator in AI technology?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So, first of all, what is Chat GPT? So, it's an example of what people call a large language modeler, and so Chat GPT is AI that's been trained on a very, very big corpus, right? A very, very big set of writing. And where does the writing come from? It comes from the internet, right? So all the things that you and I might write that we sort of post publicly on the internet, OpenAI, the creator of ChatGPT, has gathered all of that, run some very, very sophisticated software on it to basically predict what words or what sequence of words should come after an existing sequence of words. And so, for example, if I were to start writing into ChatGPT, tell me about... This could be a prompt, as we say. This is the term people use. This is the prompt I could give ChatGPT. Provide me with my opening lines for the full story, right, for your show. And the extent that there's something written out there on the Internet that ChatGPT was trained on such that it would know what I'm talking about when I say the full story, it might then give me sort of a paragraph that I could then use in my opening remarks for the full story. Now, full disclosure, I did not do that. But that would be one of the many, many uses that you could use ChatGPT for.
0: going to say, as far as I know, Professor Robert Siemens is actually talking with us now, not artificial intelligence on the other end of this conversation. You mentioned your work with economics. Is AI technology already transforming the workplace industries in our region that you know of?
1: It is. So I think the important thing to remember is that AI has been around us for a while, your listeners can't see it, but I'm holding up my iPhone and there's plenty of AI in my uh, iPhone, uh, the most useful of which is software that helps me figure out the quickest way to get from point A to point B, right? So some of the mapping software, I use that when I'm driving, I use that when I'm walking, I use that to figure out which subways to use here in New York City, incredibly useful and helpful to me. That's one way in which AI has been helpful to me so far this is in a way coming back to your earlier question about ChatGPT bursting onto the scene. So all of us have been using AI over the past five years or so, but ChatGPT really sort of took people by surprise and in some ways sort of really grabbed people's attention. This was starting, you know, December, January or so. And in part, I think it's because the way that it writes out, you know, the way that it responds to whatever prompt that you give is unlike anything that we've seen before in terms of what AI can do. And so I think it's really sort of grabbed all of our imaginations in terms of what it is that this technology could be used for. And given the sort of what looks like a very dramatic increase in terms of the sophistication of the technology, what that might imply for the future. Right. Are we sort of on a different trajectory now than we were before?
0: It seems like the technology is evolving very quickly, although, as you just pointed out, the chat GPT story sort of burst onto the scenes, maybe artificially illustrating a quick evolution, but is it changing uh, quite quickly? It does seem that way.
1: Yes, it definitely seems that way. Now, here's where probably a computer scientist would give you a better answer to that question. I've talked to computer scientists, and I get, um, let me give you the two ends of the spectrum. Yes, there's a there's been a very big dramatic change. Okay, that's one end of the spectrum. Other end of the spectrum is, no, this is just part of gradual change that we've been seeing and sort of witnessing over the past five to 10 years, you know, the truth is probably somewhere in between there. It certainly feels like something uh, big has happened. It's not totally clear though, how much of that might be a little of sort of media driven hype around this new technology. But for sure, I do think that there is a little bit of that, right? There is a little bit of sort of media hype around this technology, but that being said, it is pretty exciting. You know, it's fun to play around with.
0: Connecting uh, AI, again, with the economy, with big industry, you were a co-author on the paper, Who Profits from Industry 4.0? Theory and Evidence from the Automotive Industry. Uh, First of all, what exactly is Industry 4.0? Is that an evolution of industry, again, based on this kind of technology?
1: When people talk about Industry 4.0, they they don't necessarily mean AI, but they mean just sort of more advanced technologies that are being used, particularly in manufacturing, to modernize the, the way that manufacturing happens. So it could be AI. It also could be advanced robotics, could be sensors, as well as other types of technologies.
0: Do you see AI sort of like the warnings we heard about robotics, you know, going way back? Is AI something that could destroy some jobs, also creating new ones? you said something uh, along those lines in an article from NBC News uh, in which you were featured.
1: Yeah. So this, of course, is the big worry. There are a lot of people Mm. that are worried about AI taking people's jobs, just like people worried about robots taking people's jobs. First, the the research on robots uh, so far does not suggest that people are losing their jobs to robots. If anything, it looks like firms that adopt robots see an increase in employment. Now, when it comes to AI and jobs, I think we're going to see a wide range of effects. Certainly, there'll be some new jobs created that we can't even sort of envision right now. It's true there'll probably be some jobs that end up being lost as a result of AI. However, I think those two are sort of really in the minority. I think mostly what's going to happen is that all of us will start using this new technology in our jobs. So our jobs will change. They'll sort of evolve to take advantage of this new technology. But it won't be that we're going to lose our jobs as a result of it. I think a good analogy is thinking about you know sort of the dawn of the internet or the dawn of personal computing. Those were technologies, personal computing and the internet, that changed the way a lot of us do our work. But it certainly hasn't put a lot of us out of work. It's also created a lot of new jobs as well. But again, I really the big story here, I think, is that our jobs will change, but most of us are not going to lose our jobs because of AI.
0: A couple of months ago, Sam Altman, the co-founder and president of OpenAI, tweeted, AI is going to change a lot of things. The world is going to get phenomenally wealthy. What do you think he meant by that? Good
1: question. <laughs> Ask him. No, um, I, I think what he's hinting at or suggesting is the idea that a lot of economists have, including myself, that AI is gonna help boost productivity. And so it, it'll it'll lead to a lot of economic growth. So in that sense, AI should help make the world a wealthier place. However, I think one of the worries that uh, many economists, including myself, have is while we do want to see more wealth created, if you will, we want the pie to expand. We also want to make sure that everybody can share in that and not that it's a few companies or a few owners of of a few companies at the very top end of the income distribution who benefit from this, whereas everybody else doesn't.
0: We have a clip of what Altman said in Washington, D.C. this week. He was urging lawmakers to regulate the development of AI. Here's that clip.
2: OpenAI was founded on the belief that artificial intelligence has the potential to improve nearly every aspect of our lives, but also that it creates serious risks we have to work together to manage. We think that regulatory intervention by governments will be critical to mitigate the risks of increasingly powerful models. For example, the U.S. government might consider a combination of licensing and testing requirements for development and release of AI models above a threshold of capabilities. I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite
3: wrong, uh, and we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government to prevent that from happening.
0: Do you have any concerns about AI going quite wrong and uh, government intervention really not being able to, to stop it or handle it? Is it sort of a Jurassic Park situation, so to speak?
1: no so i think that that is where there's a little bit of media hype right so we, we've seen you know what look to be sort of dramatic improvements in terms of what it is that ai can do over the past six to 12 maybe 18 months but that doesn't mean that the world is suddenly rapidly changing or something like that so i, I think there's a little bit of uh, hype or sort of scare around that uh in, in terms of you know whether we're headed for like jurassic park or something like that you know th- that being said there certainly are harms that can be created by ai And I think that Altman is correct to highlight that fact. I think it's looking increasingly clear that there's going to be regulation of some sort in this sector. On average, let's say, I think that that's a good idea. I I think it's, it's a good idea that we start figuring out how to regulate the sector. However, the thing I worry about the most is that the regulation that'll be put in place is regulation that'll be overly burdensome for smaller companies and startups. And to his credit, Altman also touched on that in his testimony as well. You know, larger companies like OpenAI, or for that matter, Microsoft or Google or Apple or Amazon, all of which are developing their own large language models, all of which have very advanced and sophisticated artificial intelligence programs. They have the the scale and the resources to be able to handle whatever type of regulation is put in place. Whereas the many, many startups that are trying to enter this space, they, they really don't have those same resources. And so I think for the sake of innovation, entrepreneurship, I think it's really important that whatever regulation is put in place somehow differentiates between really large companies and smaller and medium-sized companies. And by the way, typically regulation that gets put in place in different industries is aware of, of the sort of regulatory burden that it might place on smaller companies. And so does have sort of tiered types of regulation and so I, I would imagine and hope that we have something like that in place in this industry as well.
0: Regulation aside for the moment, so much of the economy, both Connecticut, New York, the country, so much of business is made up of the small and medium-sized companies you know all the way from you know mom and pop to maybe medium-sized machine shops and whatnot. is AI and, and this is sort of a request for prediction, but down the road, can you see AI as something that's a technology that the smallest of companies can benefit from? And can they really afford the software that they would need to make their businesses stronger, to increase sales or, or what have you?
1: Yes, I, absolutely. Again, I think the analogy to you know dawn of personal computing or, or dawn of Internet works here as well. You know, it used to be just the biggest companies had their own computer system or just the biggest companies had a web presence. But now any small and medium sized business, of course, is going to have personal computers, of course, is going to have an Internet presence. I think the same will be true here where it might not be that the smaller companies are developing their own AI in the same way that OpenAI has or that Microsoft and Google have. I think you'll start seeing things like AI as a service. I mean, that already exists, right? I mean, any of us that have used ChatGPT, we're basically using AI as a service. We're using OpenAI's product. So I think that for sure you'll see small and medium companies using AI in a wide variety of ways. Now, now one thing that I think is quite exciting, again, thinking about ChatGPT, is right now it's sort of a curiosity and people are playing around with it. There are some tools and plugins that folks have built that sort of sit on top of it. But there's going to be, you know, within the next six to 12 months, sort of an explosion of new products and services that people will create on top of this technology. And I, I'm excited to see what those are.
0: For the uh, average person, would you suggest a, a source for artificial intelligence development, understanding, keeping track of what's going on in layman's terms? What's a good place to look for that information, would you say?
1: That's a good question. I, I don't know that I have a, a specific source that I could suggest there are plenty of magazine and journal publications that mm-hmm. one can follow, certainly news outlets as well, like Washington Post or New York Times or Wall Street Journal or, or, or The Economist. Uh, but, but I don't have a specific one I could suggest.
0: And for businesses, from the smallest to the biggest, are local chambers of commerce, for instance, the place to go to find out what's happening with AI, AI that, you know, I, the small business owner, could take advantage of today or in the next couple of weeks or months?
1: Again, it's a great question. I don't have a good suggestion for that. I I think for larger companies, you could start looking to companies like Accenture or PwC or McKinsey who will have resources. Those are, I think, probably well suited for larger companies. For small, medium-sized companies, so you mentioned Chamber of Commerce before. Honestly, right now, I'm not aware of the extent to which they might be providing resources, but I think it is the type of thing where within a few months, you'll start seeing more of that.
0: It may be time for that for uh, local chambers. I agree with you. Yeah. Do you foresee artificial intelligence having a big impact on the economy down the road, changing the basic economy?
1: Yes. So I, I do think that AI will transform our economy. I think it's hard to predict what it will look like. Again, I, I keep falling back on thinking about the internet, thinking about personal computing, and thinking about the ways that that changed our economy. You know, the way that we now all do work is different than it was, say, in 1979 or or so. Remote work is just one example of that. Working from home, right? The ability to log in to your workplace from your dining room table. So so I think that there'll be similar types of transformations. I don't have a good handle on what that might look like, though, uh, in terms of how AI will affect things.
0: Is there anything else that we should be touching on regarding AI and the economy?
1: So, yes, I think there's one other thing I'd like to bring up. I really like that in our conversation, we've talked about differences across large companies and medium and small size companies. Frankly, it's not something that comes up as often as it should. So as an economist, I think about this as sort of heterogeneous effects across the economy. I think there are other sources of heterogeneity that are important to be thinking about. And that's thinking about the the way that AI uh, might be used or might affect different industries or different occupations. And moreover thinking about demographic characteristics of people that work in those industries and occupations you know right now a lot of the research including some of my own research suggests that ai at least initially will mostly have an effect on higher income type occupations and by have an effect you know most likely this would be not a substitution effect but most likely sort of an augmentation type effect but to the extent that it actually allows folks in higher income brackets to benefit then one wonders if there's ways that we can try to uh, spread that across more of the income distribution. So again, just thinking about the heterogeneous effect of this new technology.
0: That's a really good point, that's interesting, yeah. Your 1979 mentioned before, I was cutting audio tape with a razor blade and sticking it back together with sticky tape for editing back then. (laughs) If somebody had said, no, no, you'll just a couple of keys on the computer, you'll be looking at it and that's it it's hard to say what the transformation might be down the road specifically.
1: And just to build off of that point, I mean, one thing, again, I find this very exciting to think about, is that example, that's a great example about how that technology is affecting or has affected your specific industry. Now, Now think about all the many different industries and the way that the technologies are gonna affect, technologies from the past have affected those industries. And then, you know, I think you're gonna see the same type of thing play out with AI. So this is why it's very hard to predict, right? When a when question is, well, how will AI affect the economy or how will it affect different industries? I mean, there are going to be multitudes of effects across different industries and occupations. So, so it's really hard to sort of paint a picture that captures all of the, the different ways in which AI is going to be impacting our um, work lives, as well, for that matter, as our, you know, the way in which we play. We've been focused on jobs and the economy and things like that. But AI is also going to affect the way that we socialize, the way that we interact and engage with each other and and things like that.
0: How does artificial intelligence play into teaching, into the curriculum today?
1: Here's a a point that I uh, sort of uh, noodle on a little bit. If you were to survey most professors right now, right, this semester, we're talking in May of 2023, most of them would say, I don't currently use ChatGPT or AI in my class. If you were to survey them in September of 2023, They would say, here are the ways in which I plan to use AI and chat GPT in my class. It points to sort of an interesting sort of institutional detail about teaching, which is that teachers got their syllabi together and their their lesson plans together back in October and November. This is a technology that, yes, it was available in November, but really sort of burst into the scenes in December and January. No teacher is going to rip up their syllabus and their lesson plans just to try (laughs) to incorporate this new technology. Mm. They're going to wait until the summer. And I bet what we're going to see over the summer is a lot of teachers, including myself, playing around with this technology and thinking about ways to incorporate it in their lesson plans. Lesson plans will be very different in September. But it just has to do with the sort of nature of this specific industry and some of the institutional details of this industry.
0: Robert Siemens is an associate professor at New York University's Stern School of Business. We've been talking about the potential economic impact of artificial intelligence. Professor, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much for having me on your show. I appreciate it as well.
0: Now that AI is here, what can we do about it as well as with it? Well, lawmakers in Connecticut are considering legislation that would set some standards to manage the use, development, and procurement of artificial intelligence in the state. Back on May 11th, the state senate unanimously passed SB 1103. If it does become law, Connecticut would be one of the first few states to regulate AI tools. Democratic State Senator James Maroney is the co-chair of the General Law Committee, which first proposed this bill. And uh, he joins me now on Zoom. Senator, uh, welcome to the full story.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Certainly. Let's talk more about Senate Bill 1103. I understand it would establish not only an office of artificial intelligence, but also a task force to study it.
3: Yeah. And so the bill will accomplish a few things. First, it's going to require the Office of Policy and Management and the Judicial Branch to both create policies and procedures to govern the state government use of artificial intelligence. It would require an inventory of any instances where we are currently using systems that employ artificial intelligence. As of December 31st of this year, DAS, Department of Administrative Services, and the Judicial Branch would both need to publish on their website any agencies or instances where AI is being used, and that will be updated every year so that it will be transparent to all of our citizens where we are utilizing artificial intelligence. As of February 1 of next year, we will no longer be able to put in effect artificial intelligence or systems that employ artificial intelligence without doing impact assessments to ensure that there's no discrimination or disparate impacts. And Maintain those annual inventory of uses, of instances where we are using artificial intelligence, and also publish the policies and procedures governing the use. So it's really a transparency and and an accountability bill.
0: You must identify or rather define artificial intelligence as well, I would assume, because it's used in everything from, you know, a GPS system or, you know, something very simple like that to the more sophisticated AI that we've been hearing about recently.
3: So we used a federal definition that was part of, I believe, released with the NIST, National Institute of Science and Technology, part of their framework. And that is one of the things, looking at the definition. And because, as you mentioned, I mean, a chatbot is considered artificial intelligence, Mm. right? And depending on how you define an algorithm. And so we want to make sure that we're looking at those critical decisions. Or we don't want to slow down innovation, but we just want to make sure when you're using this for making decisions that can impact upon our citizens' lives, that it's safe and that we are doing testing ahead of time. And so we the plan is to start this year with government use of AI and then next year to look at requiring impact assessments for private businesses as well and to work in a multi-state way for that. Because we don't want, you know, companies to have to comply with the patchwork of different regulations. And so we'll try to work with a number of other states to put in similar legislation.
0: What you've described uh, in the bill, is this part of what uh, I understand is essentially an AI Bill of Rights?
3: So that is part of the task force would be to look at creating a Connecticut AI Bill of Rights. So we may do that next year. Though we do our working group last year, we did have a professor from Brown who had helped, Professor Suresh, who had helped craft the AI Bill of Rights. He's a Brown University professor. He spoke to our working group and we were taking some of the uh, pieces of that framework initially in, in the legislation. But we are looking at next year trying to craft the Connecticut Citizens AI Bill of Rights. And there are five keys to the White House blueprint, but one of them is just being able to understand and describe what the algorithm is doing. And then another is allowing for a human alternative. And if you wanted, instead of uh, relying solely on the artificial intelligence to make the decisions.
0: I see. I was going to ask you, why do we need a Bill of Rights? But it sounds like essentially it's, it's to give people an option.
3: Yes, exactly. And so there's a great book, Virginia Eubanks' book, uh, called Automating Inequality. And it talks about different instances where algorithms have been used in the provision of government services. And in a number of those instances where it was difficult to get a human alternative, Unfortunately, people were denied services, and they didn't know why. So one of the instances mentioned was a woman who was applying for Medicaid in Indiana, and she kept being denied because she hadn't checked off the right boxes. And they couldn't, by the time she was able to get them to override her denial and get the uh, cancer treatment that she was seeking, unfortunately, it was too late for her, and, and she did pass away. In the book, her sister doesn't blame that for the reason why she died, but she said it did definitely make her last months on earth much more stressful than they needed to be. And so we just want to make sure that there is that opportunity for a human intervention in cases. And just to be clear, we're not using any systems like that in Connecticut at the moment, Mm -hmm. but that's part of why the bill is so important, so that we will know where it is being used. And we do have that transparency and accountability to our citizens.
0: What about personal data? Does the bill deal with... um protecting personal data. Whenever there's new technology like this or technology that's advancing so quickly, there's always that concern that the specifics about any individual could get out there and then be used for nefarious purposes.
3: And that is one of the big concerns of these large language models. If you know how to query them and work backwards, you can get some of the underlying data that was used to train the models. Mm -hmm. We did last year in Connecticut, I, I was fortunate enough to work on SB6 last year, which passed, and goes into effect July 1 of this year, which is our consumer data privacy law. I also worked on this year SB3, which is for children's data privacy and reproductive health data privacy, so strengthening what we passed last year. We are one of the few states in the country that does have comprehensive data privacy laws to help protect the data of our citizens.
0: What about educating the public about uh, AI and what it is, what it can do, and what the state's doing about it. Uh, is that part of this bill or other efforts to uh, get the word out?
3: No, and it isn't part of this bill, but it is a, a crucial piece uh, that we do need to look at educating to understand because there's so much potential, but there's also possible perils, right? And, and we know that, and we can see. In instances where they've used AI for diagnosing pancreatic cancer three years ahead of when a doctor would be able to pick it up, or for looking at scans and detecting breast tumors almost four years ahead of when a doctor can. So there's so much potential for making us more efficient, improving and increasing the length of our lives and the quality of our lives. But we just need to make sure, again, that it's safe. And that's why doing these impact assessments is a a critical first step and getting guardrails in before the technology has been too rapidly implemented so that we can't regulate it anymore.
0: Was this bill a bipartisan effort, by the way?
3: Yes, it was a bipartisan effort. It was unanimous out of the committee, and it came out of the Senate on a unanimous vote as well, 36-0.
0: You mentioned in an article in the CT Mirror, the online news source, you said the legislation, Bill 1103, the legislation is the product of a working group whose labors shifted from back burner to urgent with the release of an easy-to-use AI tool, ChatGPT, which we're hearing a lot about. That was released back in December. Why did this particular bot cause members of the working group to fast-track
3: the bill? I think that it just brought more awareness to it, to the public. I think that we had started our work and we were looking at more of the, the algorithms of concern, but with the launch of Chat GPT and its rapid adoption I think it became the potential power of AI. More citizens became aware of that, um, and we were seeing that. And in just, I think it was, in two months, a hundred million users signed up for ChatGPT, whereas it was nine months for TikTok and over two years for Instagram to get to 100 million users. So we're just seeing that everything is coming so much more quickly now and being adopted more rapidly, that it has increased that sense of urgency for us to do something.
0: You mentioned before that this advanced AI is not being used currently in Connecticut's government.
3: Correct. There are no places where we're using it for making final decisions right now. There was a study by Yale's Media and Freedom of Information where they did find a few incidences where it is being used, Mm -hmm. right? There was, I think, a magnet school that was using it for deciding on the lottery winners. And then there were a few other places where they said they couldn't determine whether it was being used or not. But when we've asked DAS and the judicial branch so far, they say it it isn't being used for final, for these critical decisions or final decisions.
0: I'm wondering... With the efforts by governments to regulate AI, does this legislative focus on sort of the dark side of AI hamper the positives that could come along with it?
3: No, I think we're we're trying to be careful that we're putting in guardrails so that you can't go too far off path and Mm -hmm. that we're ensuring safety. And I think, you know, we just have to remember it was just a few years ago we were in the, the height of the pandemic. And we still waited to test the vaccine to know it was safe before we released it, even though everyone was locked in their homes. In some cases, some people were wiping their groceries down with Lysol wipes before they bring brought them in the house. My friend whose wife, a doctor, was taking her clothes off before she came back into the house. And so with that level of fear, we still waited to test the vaccine to make sure it was safe. So I I think if we can wait for that in the midst of a global pandemic, we can wait a few extra months to unleash an algorithm so that we know that it's safe for our citizens to use.
0: Earlier in this program, we spoke with Robert Siemens. He's an associate professor at New York University's Stern School of Business. And what he does is research how companies use technology to interact with each other and also the economic consequences of AI and other advanced technologies. And he said that the fears that some have about AI are misguided, and he suggested how the media, us included, I guess, suggested how the media covers AI as helped to feed those fears. Would you agree with that?
3: I think anytime anything is new, there are some fears, but I think there's so much potential as well, and especially when you look in business. And I know a lot of people are afraid it's going to replace or cost jobs. But if we look right now in Connecticut, we have 100,000 jobs that are open. We have an aging population and a declining workforce. And so we're going to need to employ artificial intelligence so we can be more efficient. It'll enable people to live in their homes longer and to give care and have more full lives. So I, I think there are so many potentials, but I think it's just a natural inclination when anything is new
0: to, to fear change. We talked earlier about the support the bill had in the state Senate. Does it have the same momentum in the state House that you know of? And if it gets to the governor, is he likely to sign it?
3: I believe, you know, my, my co-chair, uh, Representative D'Agostino, has been a, a strong supporter of this bill. And so I I believe it does have uh, some momentum in the House. And, you know, we did work with the uh, Office of Policy and Management and the governor's staff to help craft this legislation. So my hope would be that he would sign it. You never say anything until it passes the House and until the governor signs it. There's Mm -hmm. always a chance that it it won't do either of those. Either of those things won't happen. But I I am uh, cautiously optimistic.
0: We've been talking about uh, Connecticut State Senate Bill 1103 that attempts to regulate to some extent artificial intelligence in the state. And we've been talking about that with Democratic State Senator James Maroney, who's the co-chair of the General Law Committee, which first proposed the bill. Talking with him via Zoom, not far from uh, the railroad tracks, apparently. Uh, Senator, thanks (laughs) so much for your time uh, uh, today. We appreciate your insights about this bill and about uh, artificial intelligence. Of the main discussions about AI today is about academic integrity. Are students actually doing their homework on their own or are they using AI tools, things like chat GPT to do it for them? Schools have already begun to take action to regulate AI. Some are just restricting the use of it as the teaching tool. Others are banning it completely. Professor Tom Deans is joining us next to share his perspective on AI and He's the director of the Writing Center at the University of Connecticut, and he joins us via Zoom. Professor Deans, welcome to The Full Story. Thank you, it's good to be here. Tell us about the Writing Center and how you work with your students in that center. What's the purpose of it?
2: Yeah, so most colleges and universities have a writing center. Even more and more high schools have writing centers. We've been helping start those across the state of Connecticut. But these are centers where they may be led by a faculty member like me, But the primary day to day work of students consulting on writing is done peer to peer. So I will here at UConn recruit and then train and mentor about 25 undergraduates from lots of different fields who all are kind of good at talking about academic work and writing with their peers to then work a few hours a week in a writing center with along with some graduate students with some faculty mentorships. And that's where the real action of the writing center is. They might be able to come into the writing center at 10 in the morning or 10 at night on a Tuesday on anything that they're working on for their schoolwork. Even for things that stretch a little beyond school, like they're writing personal statements for graduate school or doing some writing for a summer internship they want to get. It's meant to be a kind of low risk place to go to get a consultation on your writing because students might be coming in, just figuring out how to get started. They might be coming in, figuring out how to organize something. Or they might be coming in at those final editing stages and we just meet them where they are.
0: Young people are usually the first to jump into new technology. And I'm wondering, with AI, have you seen at the Writing Center a decrease in the number of students uh, coming in now that something like AI is available?
2: Well, if you look at when ChatGPT hit, it was, I think, November 30th or so when the release happened. and so the real excitement in terms of public engagement started at the end of this last calendar year mm. and the beginning of this year, yeah, we recent. actually haven't seen any decrease. We saw a big decrease with COVID when we went entirely online and we've been recovering since then. So if anything, we've been seeing more students, but I attribute that more to the kind of uh, the, the re-engagement of students s- slow and steady after COVID more than the emergence of something like chat GPT,
0: there was a survey published in Forbes, Forbes Magazine, a best college survey. As of March, it said 43% of college students overall say they've had experience using AI tools like chat, GPT, and half of those acknowledge turning to those tools to work on an assignment or exams. Again, quoting from uh, that survey mm-hmm. in Forbes. Have you noticed signs of AI appearing in uh, work that students who use the center Churn uh, in, or are are working on, and and if so, how do you spot that? Right. Well, I think those numbers sound about right
2: to me because we also did some surveying here at our home university. I've been working with a student, Alex Solad. who's a kind of computer science major here and very interested in AI. And together, we wanted to ask some of the more substantive questions about writing in AI, but we wanted to start with statistics like the ones you just quoted from Forbes, which was how many UConn students are actually even using this? And Mm. how do we find out? So we just did some anonymous surveying and we found these were numbers that we collected in February and March of this year. So pretty recent. That 40% of the students said they had never even tried it. Or, and another 40% said about, I've tried it once or twice, but I don't use it often. And then about 20% saying that they were using it either occasionally or frequently, but about split e- evenly there. So those numbers at Forbes where they said 40% using it and maybe half of those using it kind of regularly, that sounds about right to me. And that comports with what we found here just locally recently. That doesn't tell us too much about exactly how they're
0: using it. I was going to ask you, were you able to... Uh in the survey, find out exactly how students use AI to do their work for them or to yep. use it in conjunction with their work?
2: We we didn't. We were just asking the kind of blunt questions at this point. Um, mm. But I have talked about it with my own students. And I, and I had some pretty extended conversations with the students in my own classes this semester where, at least in my class, my policy is you can use whatever tools you need or want, but I want you to be transparent about it and we need acknowledgement statements about what kinds of tools we're using. But there's always a fuzzy area uh, in terms of writing and tools. It's one thing to say, I'm going to just throw the prompt into ChatGPT and produce an essay. I think everybody knows that that's the equivalent of kind of academic fraud. Mm. And I don't think many students are using AI that way. What they may be doing is, is using it at different points in the writing process, where to generate a first draft that, they will probably have to radically revise in order to actually make it work for their assignment, unless they're being given a very generic assignment, which might be a problem with the assignment more than with the students. (laughs) Um, Or students might be using it at the later stages to help with some editing. So we don't have a really granular sense about how students are using it. There's There's a recent article in the Chronicle of Higher Education by a Columbia student who the title is, students are using AI more than you think. And he then goes on to recount how students are using it in a kind of iterative way where they might plug in the prompt and then realize, huh, that's kind of a C minus or a high school level essay that it's producing. And maybe I'm a college student who doesn't want that, but it's giving me a few ideas that I can run with. And so they might take some of those ideas and then they might use it again later saying, I'm struggling with this part. Could you give me another paragraph or two on this? And most of the time it's going to be something interesting and maybe that you can mostly used, but probably not fully used. And so this student recounts a writing process where it's not kind of what the public might think, which is that it's just going to spit out homework answers and spit out essay answers in a way that's kind of like pulling something out of a file and, and, and just handing it in. It tends to be a little bit more interactive than that. And as a writing center director, I kind of celebrate interaction as long as it's got integrity, And it's and it's within the bounds of of, of what we expect in our classes. So, for example, if a student goes to the writing center and has a 45 minute conversation with a fellow student and that actually reshapes their writing in in productive ways, maybe they reorganized it in light of that conversation, or maybe they figured out a new way to write the introduction. Most of the time, that's not going to appear in any citation or Mm. any acknowledgement statement because we kind of assume that it's part of the way things work now, AI doesn't work exactly like that. It can produce things wholesale, but I think where we're going with this is it's probably going to be used in this more interactive way where it's going to be slippery in terms of what you have to cite and what you, and how you do that and how you acknowledge it. And I think we're in a in-between stage right now where the technology is so new that we haven't figured out the protocols for doing that. In time, I think we'll be very comfortable with kind of this hybrid writing, partly machine generated, partly human. That is already kind of a norm in some fields, but it's going to be more and more common. I'm not sure educational institutions or faculty at the college level or the high school level have really figured out exactly how to do that. So we're in a transitional phase right now.
0: Does it change the meaning of cheating then?
2: It could. We've had some conversations here at UConn. Do we need a separate policy for AI yeah, particular. And I think a lot of universities ask themselves that. And in your intro, you mentioned some school systems. I think the New York City public schools, for example, said just we need a ban. I think they rolled back on that and said, wait a minute, A, this might not be all that realistic. And B, um, maybe we need to teach students how to use these tools with integrity. So what we found here at UConn was that what we already have in terms of academic integrity and statements covers this kind of work. If you are submitting work that is not your own, whether it's a friend wrote it or you got it from a file at a fraternity, or you bought it off a paper mill on the internet, or you just had put it in chat GPT and and used that wholesale. Those aren't all that different in light of sort of policies that most universities already have as being well out of bounds. That's pretty clear. It's those other cases which someone might use it for one part of a writing assignment and then revise it or rewrite it and remix it. That I think we're still struggling with how to document, uh, acknowledge and consider whether that's even within the bounds of of a particular classes. Because this might change if you're taking a marketing class where you're teaching students how to use these tools as part of their future career versus a a writing class where it's really important that students are understanding, maybe for the first time, a new way of writing. And so going through the process of kind of struggling through it all on your own or with just your classmates is more primary.
0: As you mentioned, this is fairly new to pretty much everyone. Are you confident that, say, you could spot a, a paper that has been written primarily using AI?
2: Not entirely. I, I I don't know there there, there was there' was some tests that folks can do. There was a New York Times piece uh, a month or two back where where it played this game exactly with us, where it said, how how well can you spot the AI?" and i and I think I scored about half. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, so the, and the AI is getting better. Uh, so there are some obvious things that 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 are giveaways. So AI does something at least in its current iteration that's called hallucinating. Uh, I, I ran, for example, a story—a short story I was teaching in the beginning of the semester. The title of the story was called Two Balloons," and and uh, by by Edwin Danticat. And it's a very recent publication, and that's one of the reasons why I was I was I was assigning it because I figured there wouldn't be a lot out there on it. And and but I just ran my assignment through AI, and it it made some assumptions about what those balloons were that were very wrong. If you had read the story, that if they were really balloons, where in fact they were tattoos on a, on a person's arm. Um, so, if anybody had handed in that essay, I would have just said, "Come on, like you didn't read the story." Um, and AI will do things like make up citations pretty regularly. If you ask it to say produce an annotated bibliography on a topic that you know something about as a faculty member, you will actually recognize familiar names of researchers you might know, but they've been kind of scrambled up with different titles, and you'll you'll say, "Wait a minute, that those look right." because AI is very good at making things look good. But anyone with kind of more expert knowledge will say, wait a minute, this doesn't add up. AI made it up because it's probable that it could happen in a text like that, which is how these text generation generators work. They don't understand all the work that they're trained on all the text, but they do work statistically to predict what's the next logical word or paragraph that should come after a prompt, like you give it. So, so it will hallucinate and that's the biggest giveaways. Um, And that, that happens more often than not, if you're doing something fairly complex, but is there any way anyone can perfectly say, I know this is an AI text or not. I can't say that with full confidence by any means. And so most of us are trying to adapt our assignments, not just to evade the cheaters or or to, to prevent them, but to actually have a reminder that, hey, maybe the best assignments are really contextual and local and should ask students to think in very particular ways about continuing the conversation we've had in class in their writing. And AI is not very good at that. Enact a surveillance regime. <laughs> I came here to, to, to work with students open and honestly and assume the best of them, even though I understand that there may be some bad actors those are rare they uh, they they they're, they're not how we should design our courses we should design our courses uh with all those good faith students who are here to learn um and be careful yes uh but but the, i don't think detection software has ever been the way to go whether it's pre ai with things like turnitin.com where you've got a, a you know same basic kinds of systems trying to detect um copying out of sources or using other students. So that that's not new. Um, I don't think those are the healthiest ways to to run a university or a high school class or any kind of teaching of writing, even though I can understand why the reflex is to turn towards those. There, there's no good one out there yet. I don't anticipate that there will be anytime soon. Um, and I don't, and I think it's a bit of a, a, Aaron to to, to assume that that's going to address what we're doing. What we need to do instead is think about the front end. What kind of assignments are we doing? What kinds of other things can we do in class besides writing? This may in fact lead to fewer writing assignments, which might be a strange thing for a writing center director to recommend. But (laughs) I've always done things even in my writing classes, like have an oral exam usually to set people up for a for a writing assignment, just so I know that they, they've actually mastered what they need to do so that when they write the paper, they're not desperate and that they've already done the background work. And so things like oral exams, which don't, again, have to be like a Ph.D. grilling, you know, they, they can really be three students sitting in my office talking through what we've read together, the lectures we've done, solving problems, looking ahead to the paper they're about to write. If students do something like that and they feel ready to walk into a writing project, they're much less likely to panic and turn to ChatGPT. A lot of my colleagues here at UConn, you know, do presentations in class. Um, You can't generate a live presentation (laughs) and deliver it as a student through ChatGPT. So things that work alongside writing assignments or even instead of writing assignments to get at the kinds of critical thinking we're looking for are certainly going to be more and more on the table in the coming years.
0: Sounds like you're saying that AI could um, essentially enhance the quality of a student's education when used uh, correctly, or when you know directed in in the right way, as opposed to to uh, hurting the quality of the education.
2: I think so. I mean, I, I think we had these same debates when. World Wide Web came around. Like when I was in college, you know, we didn't have the internet. Um, and then when I was a, I was a young teacher, when the internet came upon us, <laughs> it, we, you know, and, and we forget how sudden that was. And there was a lot of talk at the time of like, this is going to kind of replace or ruin what we do at universities because suddenly everyone has access to a storehouse of knowledge.
0: Right. The, Wiki, I, the Wikipedia, safer, right. the Wikipedia scare. I, I, and the, and I the Wikipedia, yes. same
2: phenomenon where people would say Wikipedia is terrible because all students are going to do is copy Wikipedia. And now routinely, faculty at all levels will say, don't rely on Wikipedia in terms of cutting and pasting it into your paper. That's still bad practice. But is it fine to go consult it? Sure. It's a tool. It's a limited tool that's good for certain things and not so good for other things. And I think that's what we're going to find with AI eventually. Now, I think there is something that's maybe a little more revolutionary about AI that I'm still trying to get my head around um, where it's a, it's a less static tool. You know, everything it generates is original in the sense that it's, you could run the same prompt through ChatGPT five times, and it's going to give you five different responses because it's all working on statistical algorithms. So that is a little bit different, but, but to the point of your question, I think we will be, teaching and working and actually living a lot of our careers with it more than fighting it.
0: There was a letter that came out back in January from the office of the provost at UConn uh, called chat GPT AI impact on teaching and learning. And it was, I understand meant to provide some guidance to faculty about GPT three. Have educators incorporated this new technology into their curriculums or are they banning it altogether?
2: As that letter came out, it was right at the beginning of this spring semester that we've just finished up. um, With some colleagues, I put together a panel uh, and we had over 200 people come, which is not the usual thing that happens at the beginning of the semester with a panel about teaching. Um, And we've had several since. And faculty are coming, whether in person or online, which tells me they are really motivated, whether by excitement or fear, uh, or or curiosity, or just a, a general sense that we're we're in a moment of change and we need to be talking to each other. So so they are they are um, aware. At the same time, when I often ask that group of faculty or even high school teachers, how many of you actually use this regularly? It tends to be that very small. maybe 20%. And so I'm always telling them, go try it. Like run your own assignments through it. I'm I'm reorganizing a class right now that starts next week. And I just kind of ran my old assignments through it and I redid some of the assignments and I redid some of my policies just to make it more clear about what students could and couldn't use tools for and what the consequences were if they used them when they weren't supposed to and so on. But to, The response of faculty so far has been varied. So some are saying, Nope, please don't. Or you absolutely may not use this for this class. Others have said. Use it for whatever you want, but realize AI hallucinates and creates things and you're responsible if you submit that kind of work or give me an acknowledgement statement or they're supplementing these with kind of other checks and balances with presentations to make sure students are really digesting what they're supposed to digest, uh, most of us are trying to revise our syllabus language to comport with our own teaching philosophies and, and, and our courses. And this might change if you're if you're teaching a lecture with 300 students versus a seminar with 15 students. And so there's no standard language that we're all required to put in our syllabus, but we're all I'd say, well, I'd say most of most faculty I've talked to are are saying, what are you doing? Well, what, what are you doing? And it's generating a lot of hallway conversation, as well as a lot of kind of a more official discourse, like that letter from the provost and the panels that that we've held on campus through our Center for Teaching and Learning.
0: Perhaps on a college campus, there's less fear about something like this. Although you mentioned that perhaps some of the panel uh, uh, folks who attended the panel uh, maybe came out of out of fear. But yep. why do you think, especially? off-campus, why do you think that many people have this sort of negative reaction towards, yeah. you know, new technologies generally, but AI specifically? It's been talked about um, more intensely, at least in the media, in the past, uh, you know, six, eight months. Absolutely. And I think part of that, to your question, is, is that any new
2: technology tends to generate some degree of panic. When it comes to writing, I People often and I often point people back to Plato and say, like, Plato thought writing itself was a really bad idea because (laughs) why? Because once you start writing everything down, people are going to start forgetting things. Their memories are going to go to hell because everything will be written down and they won't talk to each other as much. And I really value talking to each other. And what if everything's in a text? And well, you know, we've seemed to survive with and thrive with with actual writing itself. Uh, I've mentioned the panics that came around, even the Internet and so on. So, so I think there is a certain just reflex where we go, wait a minute, this is disrupting something that's important to me, maybe important even to my job. Um, And it scrambles some of the moral order that we, we take for granted, which is we can name what's original and what's a fake. And once you make it really hard to distinguish what the line between originality and something else is, boy that's that's uncomfortable and and i think part of it's there now i think the particular nature of ai there there is something new with these these statements that are coming out from computer scientists and ethicists about ai's kind of capacity for um by its very nature doing things on its own <laughs> and 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 having certain cycles of learning from its own mistakes, as well as learning in ways that we can't fully predict because there there's a certain amount of unpredictability to it, unlike older style algorithmic kind of computer science where you, you have pretty clear, clean algorithms that tell you what's going to happen. In AI, there's often something going on inside a black box that we don't quite. I certainly don't know exactly how it works. I know some basics about it. But 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 it's unpredictable in, in ways that some of those earlier technologies may not have been, and, and I think uh, that that stretches beyond my expertise. So so I'm so I'm cautious <laughs> and and mindful of, of 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 those those warnings as well. But in the sphere that I know, which is education, um, it doesn't feel that dangerous to me in, in the ways that it could be really dangerous in terms of amplifying inequality and in things like financial or criminal justice contexts. Um, uh, it could, uh, but I. But I. That's why I want to get ahead of it, and 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 have teachers and and students together think about ways that well, how do we prepare for a world where this is probably going to be just part of how we write, how we learn.
0: I heard one rather pessimistic observation about uh, people in AI a couple of months ago, when uh, again when it was sort of hot news. And, and I, I forget who, who it was that said this. Uh, it was a computer scientist or someone who follows computer science said something along the lines of, well, human intelligence is just a phase in the evolution of AI, <laughs> which I thought was rather uh, funny and cynical at the same time. But well, Professor... we had
2: that landmark moment, you know, years ago when Watson beat the Jeopardy contestants, right? And that, <laughs> that, that made people stand up and say, wait a minute, is this sort of leading us towards some kind of sci-fi future that we've seen in novels and and, and films. Um, but but there is that that perspective about it raises fundamental questions about what is human intelligence and what does it need to even be human? You know, this phone that we carry around in our hand all the times. Academics don't just think about that as something separate from the body anymore. It's you offload part of your memory to that phone phone because things that we used to have to remember we just rely on devices or cloud computing, and that is that kind of distributed cognition. A phase in humanity, to use the phrase that, that you're quoting there, mm-hmm. um, maybe. Uh, and and and, but it's it's raising fundamental questions about what intelligence is and what human that 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 modifier human means.
0: Professor Tom Deans is the director of the Writing Center at the University of Connecticut. We've been talking about. AI, Artificial Intelligence, in academia. Professor, thanks so much for your time and for your insights about the topic and uh, how you've been using it and seeing it used uh, on the UConn campus. We appreciate it.
2: It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Tom.
0: And that's it for today's show, produced by Sophie Kamizzi with Fatou Sangare and senior producer Ann Lopez. I'm Tom Kuser. Thank you for listening to The Full Story.